You are listening to the UCHRI podcast. This is Allison Nunziata, Research Programs Manager. Today we bring you another talk bit in our series interrogating the concept of civil war, a robust series that over the past year has resulted in conversations on aerial warfare, digital interfacing, political civility, among other diverse subjects, layer by layer revealing all this concept has to offer. In spring 2018, I spoke with Jennifer Terry, professor of gender and sexuality studies at UC Irvine, about her 2017 work, Attachments to War, in order to investigate the symbiotic logic by which war and the advanced world of biomedicine are intertwined. For instance, how might war look differently if medicine had never progressed into the reparative world of prosthetics? Together, we talk through this important hypothetical, as well as the implications of her work for our civil war project overall. As a note to listeners, due to some temperamental streaming, we unfortunately experience very minor technical difficulties during this recording, and so you will hear slight breaks here and there. Take a listen. What do you think of when you think of civil war? Or rather, what is the relationship for you between civility and war? So because we're in universities, there's a local meaning here of civility as a kind of disciplining um, apparatus to be civil to one another, to be you know civil within the classroom. And so I've been really interested in that far less bloody and devastating kind of um, valence of the term. Putting that together with war, I think your initial question suggested there, there might be an oxymoron here that there is no such thing as a civil war if you're thinking civility is calm, peaceful, rational, you know, deliberative, caring, etc. But if we don't, if we if we allow for very for a moment that civility can be a policing structure um, as to what can be said and how it's said and you know comportment and all that, it that tangles that entangles liberalism in a really significant way. You know, so this is just to say, I mean, the 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 question that you're raising and that the pro- project is is reaching for in in the UCHRI is super interesting because it you know it is I think the case that civility can be seen as having these multiple valences, but if there is an overlap between notions of civility and wars fought in the name of humanity, it could be about you know, reshaping the lives of people into, you know, in the cases of the war that I most recently studied, neoliberal subjects will be, you know, compliant with a rebuilt economy um, that, you know, stages them as civilized or capable of civil being civilized through a, you know, becoming proper subjects of neoliberal markets. All of that is offset slightly by the, you know, sort of extremely um, significant rise of illiberal, former liberal states, you know, and I couldn't help but, you know, think about this this morning when I was preparing to talk to you, watching the news about the, you know, pipe bombs being sent all over the country to, you know, apparently targeted toward people and organizations that have been most critical of Donald Trump. So, you know, there's so much that's constantly unfolding here that when, when I think about that, this book that I just finished, 
which which is really about the Bush administration and a lot of the neoconservative activities that, that were you know put into you know set through think tanks and developed as you know into the kind of statecraft models by um, Irving Kristol and David Frum and all these people that are never Trumpers. Uh, I just you know I feel like God I'm glad, I'm really glad I finished the book before all this. Uh, uh, you know, erupted because I don't know what I would have done, what the epilogue would possibly look like. Um, but it also makes me a little cautious, but I just wanted to put across to you and anybody listening to this that I feel like I have no authority to speak about this, you know, to, to speak really with it about civil war. I'm very interested in the topic, but I don't know what I, I think I could probably say more about this other dimension of, you know, counterinsurgency and winning the war, winning the war through winning hearts and minds and, you know, the, the, the claims that the U.S. was making about Afghanistan and I Iraq in the first decade of the 21st century. In your opinion, does civility then play any role in counterinsurgents? The feminist analysis that comes in here that's, I think, very useful is not just that women are enlisted to these activities to be the state actors in a way or to be the regime actors that are going to carry out this conversion process of changing the minds of whoever's being colonized. Um, that's important, you know, the assumption that women can do this better, which happened a lot in Afghanistan. Um, but the, at, a, at a not so focused upon identity way of thinking about feminist work, it's allowed, you know, an optic on everyday life to really come to the fore, you know, to look at how everyday life is highly subject to highly coercive, you know, interventions in counterinsurgency programs and, you know, developing different ways of telling stories. A lot of this is the fine grained activity of bodily practices focused upon and parenting styles and, you know, the idea that women in a family could, you know, really influence the larger uh, tribal environment. This was part of the counterinsurgency idea that was imposed by the U.S. in Afghanistan. If you get to the women, you can change the narrative. And so women as agents of counterinsurgency and targets of it, that this was really very interesting to me at, when I was uh, researching my book because medicine, the access to medical care and to um, you know, all manner of, you know, help in, in the context of war, either to deal with severe injuries or also just to provide for, you know, the control of infectious diseases. You know, clinics became the location for trying to recruit women in Afghanistan to this, you know, counterinsurgency and new regime. So, to, you know, and what does medicine promise? It promises to be a salve, you know, against severe injury, but also to be caring in its ethic. And that's why, you know, some, some of that stuff was a colossal failure because clinics became weaponized um, and became sites of extreme terror because the insurgents, you know, identified them as a, as a place where people would go and could be terrorized. So the destabilizing of the new regime happened around schools and clinics. And that I think is really significant um, because that's your, your, you know, the, the target is decidedly weak 
Do you know what I mean? Because it is claiming to be, you know, it's it's this moment of interface of care. So anyway, those are some of the thing, things that I've been thinking about um, that may have some relationship to the project that we're talking about. What would war have looked like then without medical advancement? It's almost inconceivable to think about these two being separated from one another, at least in modern times and even arguably prior to modern medicine with its antiseptic knowledge and, you know, it's it kind of, um, it, it's various forms of routine that's, you know, grow out of an understanding of how wounds work and, you know, the advancements in medical knowledge, which I shouldn't put in quotes like that. I mean, they, they we do know more about um, how certain circulatory systems work and, you know, and how genetics can play a part in various forms of uh, treatment and care, you know. So I don't mean to, I don't mean to um, say that it's all, it, there's, these are just fabrications or ideological configurations. There's actual, there's an actual material dimension here that, you know, there is survivability of bodies previously that would never have made it out, you know, because helicopters move fast and EMT teams know how to staunch, you know, bleeding quicker and, you know, et cetera. Since my focus has been about modern and you could say, I guess, postmodern warfare, I don't even know how to answer that question because they have been so entangled with each other, you know, for quite a while now that it's hard to figure out what to say. However, if we say that war is maybe not just limited to instances of declared state actors or non-state actors in some kind of organized fashion, carrying out tactics and strategies that are part of a larger doctrine of war. And we instead assume that war could be in the intimate dimensions between two people, that it is defined primarily by violence and animus, not by these organizational principles of battalions. And so I think what it might look like is, you know, I guess, you know, let's let's look at conflicts where medicine dare not go. You know, like, let's look at, or or it, it, it's a willing participant in the most egregiously hideous behaviors any humans could conceive of, genocidal slaughter, you know. Um, that's what I think about. I, I, I immediately go to, and this is part of the trap that I think you're pointing out. We, I go immediately to the most extreme images of carnage and de degradation, you know, um, just, you know, hideous scenarios of sexual violence and, you know, rampant kind of like no, there's no social fabric to, to you know, a redeem situation, you know, and that's, since you know that that response of mine is a symptom of the problem we're talking about here which is that war is necessarily civil in some fashion and then there's this other thing that we don't even know what that is and and it, and and those scenarios obviously are frequently racialized in the minds of people who think there's such a thing as orderly war you know um so you know, I, 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 it's disturbing to me that I can't either. I answer that question by saying it's impossible, or if I answer it by saying, "Oh, it's possible to think about war without civility," and what it is is the the most debased, hideous human behavior ever imaginable: slaughter, genocidal slaughter. 
you know, I don't know. It's, I'm tangled up here in this problem because it indicates somehow that we're going to say that there's a good thing called civil war, a better way to do war. I don't know. You know, it's just, I'm so skeptical of that. Uh, that that's, that's my response. It's not a very good one, but uh, that's what I'm thinking about. What lessons about unity or brokenness does the study of prosthetics offer? Years ago, Talal Asad was invited to come to Irvine to give the Wellick Lectures, which are these endowed lectures that happen springtime over three days. And interspersed within them are meetings that that uh, scholar will have with graduate students or faculty, or, you know, and they get to choose what it is they're going to talk about. And then that turns, uh, in, in most cases, um, that would turn into a small um, volume published, I think, by Columbia University Press. And the year that Talal was probably 2005 or something. I don't, I'd have to go back and look, but it was, you know, long, quite a long time ago. And he presented the lectures that turned into his small book, but super important book called On Suicide Bombing. And in that uh, series of, are you familiar with that, that, that book? I am actually, yeah. But you might read yeah. 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 So, I, you know, there's much going on in those three lectures that are phenomenally important, I think. And, and uh, you know, to sort of put it in a larger frame to, to say something about the three lectures together, what he was doing from my reading is something that he's done in his other, so much of his other work, which is to look at how secularity has its own mystifications you know, to kind of, from a point of view of sort of anthropological inquiry um, and critical theory, he has looked at religion and he's looked at secularity across different sites in his in his body of work to you know show the how these um, the definitions of these two categories are so deeply imbricated with one another. You know, so what he was trying to do is um, inquire into how it is that the suicide bomber is perceived so much from a Western Samuel Huntington kind of point of view as in, as you know, like supremely irrational, you know, who would, you know, and, and the sign of their barbarity or, you know, the barbarity of the regime that they, or the ideas they, they speak for, you know, is signified through this act of self, you know, destruction. And so in that, but, you know, so that's the main thing he was like showing that actually military conscription in the, you know, in the West has, sim and has similar qualities to this. Why don't we think of it as similarly irrational? Why does it, uh, you know, enjoy a particular kind of, you know, recognition as kind of rationality, um, et cetera. But there was a little, a, a small passage in his lecture that really stuck with me at the time and motivated me to write the book that I wrote. That you know, he wasn't the only um, person that I was on my mind, but but you know, Donna Haraway has been very much part of this thinking for me too. But he made a point that there's a remarkable quality of mutual provocation between wounding and healing in modern war. He you know turned to the work of this very you know conventional military historian John Keegan to point out something that Keegan wrote about at length and about. French warfare in World War One, that the history of technology and the, and the history of warfare and the history of medicine are deeply connected with one another in modern, you know, visions of progress. 
and you can actually, you know, see that playing out that, you know, bullets are developed to do more damage and then surgeries are developed to respond to the kind of damage those bullets will do. So this mutual provocation thing, I was like, oh my God. And having survived as a child of a severely injured father um, who, you know, was injured quite significantly in his service in Vietnam, I was like, you know, it hit me at both the personal level and also this intellectual level, uh, you know, and I, I immediately, that is the provocation that spurred me to write this book that I've been talking about. And, you know, they come to a level that's quite concrete and material when you're thinking about the production of market niches for new products to deal with blood clotting, to deal with prosthesis, to deal with infectious disease control. Wars are profitable, not just for weapons dealers, but for countermeasure pharmaceutical companies or, you know, blood clotting companies, et cetera. You know, so I was really interested in not just sort of an, you know, a philosophical um, existential approach to thinking about this, but really a material one, like what is going on with war profiteering that is in this dimension of biotechnology? And because of my other interests about sexuality and reproduction and reproductive health, I was, you know, suddenly in the midst of this research, finding out all this stuff about regenerative tissue, stem cells, fetuses, I, you know, it is the chimera of that Haraway and others have talked about that, you know, brings together this killing and, and healing. Rather than focus on the misuses of medicine in, for example, torture, which is certainly belongs within the larger structure that, that I was trying to look at in my book, but, you know, you can look at the abuse, the so-called abuses of medicine and medical practice in war. There's a long history of it, torture, you know, um, for one. But I wanted to look at the, claim, the claims made by doctors, clinicians, therapists, and product designers that have this much more, you know, hopeful taking the Hippocratic Oath into, you know, like celestial levels of, you know, care to say, we owe, a sac you know, we owe these people for the sacrifice they've made to the nation. We should, you know, offer them comfort and redeem them physically, if possible, through the best our scientists and physicians can dream of. You know, to me, that seemed really important because that's, the, that's that cycle of redemption and that I talk about at length in the book um, and use, you know, play on the double meaning of the term redemption, like getting, having a debt paid back to you, but also the, you know, Christian notions of evangelical notions of being saved and born again. And so it really is the, the, the fact that medicine and medical practice and medical philosophy stages itself so much as, as a, you know, that mixture, a kind of secular redemption um, has all the dreams of total control. Um, you know, it can claim also it's fundamentally humane qualities because it's you know, intended to care for the ill and, and sick, the sick and wounded. But then it also has this additional possibility for us, which is to not just create a, a, a sense of wholeness of the, you know, the nearly destroyed body or the surviving, you know, barely surviving body, but 
And this is the part about prosthetics that's so key, and I draw from other people who've written about this to make the case, that it dreams of a superhuman capacity, something that exceeds the limits of the even perfectly healthy body, super athletic qualities, a kind of, you know, exceeding nature's limitations. So there's a whole chapter that in which I talk about this MIT uh, scientist, he's an engineer named Hugh Herr, who has a pretty lively TED Talk career. Um, and he's, you know, a brilliant um, prosthetic designer. He himself, having suffered from a frostbite injury that resulted in the amputation of both of his legs below the knee when he was a young man. And he, so his story is super compelling. So, you know, this I think is really important. And, and that is this point I, you know, I'm trying to make is that we're not talking about making people whole again in a kind of industrial model of early, you know, late 19th, early 20th century prosthetic limbs for, to deal with, you know, industrial accidents or certain kinds of war injuries. We're talking about a dream of stem cell regenerated, regenerated organs, tissues, mm -hmm. and that old fashioned unmodified human body looking like a super failed and limited, you know, being that can, that is obsolete. So, you know, there's also this kind of, you know, highly um, aspirational, you know, hope in technology that's part of this whole picture. This podcast is brought to you by UCHRI in connection with our Horizons of the Humanities Initiative, which is generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. For more interventions on the subject of civil war, visit Foundry, UCHRI's platform for experimentation in the humanities at uchri.org slash foundry.